All right, Stu, you just got to love that Boss Gags tune. Desmo, good to see you. Yeah, we haven't uh, we haven't met uh, for a little while here, so it's good to get back uh, behind the microphone in the crystal gondola. Yes, sir. Good to see high, you. High atop the high atop the uh, the Wilden. What do you call this this Wilden area here? Well, it's just the Wilden area. Wilden area. We're okay. at uh, six hundred meters, so we're we're up here. I don't know. Do you find it hard to breathe when you come to my house? Yeah, on yeah. the way up. Yeah, it's it's high. Yeah, it is high. Um, well, speaking of altitude, you were in Mexico. How was your trip? It was good. It was good. It's uh, you know that area down in Cabo. Well, then you were actually weren't at altitude. You were you were at sea level. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Yes, <laughs> but of course the the difference between that and getting up here in Wilden is that's uh, a big difference. Well, you know what? We'll um, we'll provide you with uh, oxygen when you need it. Yeah. Should should you need it? Although you're looking fit, feeling good, Lewis. Yes, Todd. Yes, good. All right. Well, we've got uh, real some excitement here. We're we're just dead uh, chuffed about uh, having our guest on today. I think the uh, the subject and the credentials from of this guest uh, that Stu you're you're going to properly introduce uh, Dr. Dan Patton here. You betcha. Yeah, you betcha. We'll and do we're, the- we're we're uh, very excited about this particular guest. But in the meantime, what have you been up to here the last uh, couple of weeks? Well, you know what. Um, the usual, although, you know what, I was going to share with you, because I know you're a big soccer fan, and the World Cup is right around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, myself and, and probably a you know billion other people have watched the Netflix uh, special on FIFA, FIFA Uncovered, which talks a little bit about the, the corruption in the game. Maybe not the sweetest way to go into the World Cup, but um, if you haven't seen it, Des. You- I, I haven't, so I'm, I will. Absolutely interested in that, but I have been over the years following the just uh, outrageous corruption in uh, in the whole FIFA roundup, you know, dating back. Uh, well, Sepp Blatter's been, been in that organization for, for a lot of years, and, of course, uh, uh, lots of headlines. Yeah, man. Well, I'll tell you what, Sepp Blatter and, and Jack Warner and Chuck Blazer in the U.S., I mean, those dudes know how to move money around. So um, I believe it. I know they, they did it very effectively. So, you know, if you haven't watched it, being a soccer fan, I, I encourage you or anybody else to watch it. So it's uh, FIFA Uncovered on Netflix. Um, how about you, man? What would you do in Mexico? Well, we played a little golf. I'd have to say that the weather was awesome. It was 29 to 32 every day in the sun. Uh, we're there 13 days and golf five times. So it wasn't, uh, wasn't every day, but... Uh, and when you're not golfing, what were you, you pounding back margaritas and eating tacos? Oh yeah, lots of tacos, lots of authentic. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's a good spot. You can you can find all the American fare, and you can find all the traditional. And why, why we were traditional almost every night. Why would you go to Mexico <laughs> to find American fare? I'm confused. Well, exactly. <laughs> Uh, buddy. Well, it's good to see you. It's good to have you back. And good to see you. Yeah, yeah. And um, how you feeling about your team in the World Cup? Back to back to soccer or footy? Footy. Yes. No. Well, I'll tell you what. It's um, like any England fan. You, you're you're extremely optimistic at the start. So you see, buddy, that that was actually, and you fell right into it. That was a that was a trap. That was a trick question. Because I was you hoping you were going to say Canada. Canada. Well. Yeah. Y- 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 I'm out of practice. Yeah, well, I got you. I think been, I know. I think I know where your allegiance is. It's ni- 1986 since they were in the uh, in the, in the uh, World Cup. Do you remember um, being in Commonwealth Stadium when Canada played Australia to qualify for that World Cup? Yes, that was that. Yeah, seems like yesterday. Big deal. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, 
It wasn't yesterday, but it feels like yesterday. You know, good thing we haven't changed. Going back to the old days, um, I remember when Edmonton brought Pele uh, here with uh, well, New York Cosmos. I say here, but in Edmonton. Yeah, yeah. At the uh, the old Clark Stadium, if you remember the Edmonton Black Gold professional soccer team. Yes, sir. Playing the uh, just a you know like an exhibition game to you know bring a star. I mean, he was at the very end of his career, but uh, I saw Pele at Clark Stadium in Edmonton. Did they bring him in like November? <laughs> no, no, it was it was a cool day though. It was in the fall. It was pretty cool. It was cool for a Brazilian, I'm sure. <laughs> it sure was. <laughs> anyway, let's carry on. Take that any way you want. <laughs> All right. Well, look, we, we've we've talked about it before. I mean, you and I have done our our introductions as it relates to our backgrounds and what's kind of kept us busy for the last several decades. And, you know, mine being healthcare, like I said, we've chatted before that uh, we were going to have a guest on that, that could talk to us about, you know, healthcare, uh, maybe generally, but more specifically, this guest is, is going to talk about, um, you know, sort of taking care of ourselves and, and um, heart health. Uh, we're super fortunate, as you said earlier, Des, to have Dr. Dan Patton with us. Uh, Dan uh, is a local cardiologist, but um, like all docs, I gotta, I gotta, you know, do the right thing and 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 give his his high level CV and and credentials. So, uh, Dr. Patton did his BSc in life sciences at Queen's University, uh, did his uh, med school at the University of Toronto, did an internal medicine residency at U of T. Uh, cardiology residency at Queens and a fellowship in echocardiology at Queens as well. Dr. Patton is currently staff cardiologist and uh, echo lab director here at the Kelowna General, uh, and he's also uh, an associate professor of medicine at UBC. So we are super thrilled uh, to have Dan with us today. Welcome, Dan. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. As soon as I found out you were doing a podcast, I was very, uh, very excited uh, about the opportunity. Uh, and, it, and the location of your studio is uh, incredibly convenient. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. No, it's <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you were excited. That, that's great to hear. Um, and it's awesome to have you. And I think, you know, there's so many things about healthcare, Dr. Patton, that we could talk about. Um, but we thought we'd maybe start start with an easy one. Um, you're a cardiologist. You see a ton of patients. I mean, you and I have talked about it before without, of course, you ever disclosing who your patients are. That, that would be entirely wrong. That'd be very bad. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, Des and I being um, a couple of uh, dudes in their 50s, granted, we're in probably above average shape and condition for our age, Des. Peak condition. But, but for the Clearly for those for those folks finely tuned yeah finely <laughs> tuned athletes, um, but uh, Dr. Patton for those who who uh, are listening, mm-hmm. and I know you're a big fan of of uh, preventative medicine, mm-hmm. you know, outside of the natural don't drink don't smoke maybe exercise periodically, can, can we really fight genetics as it relates to you know cardiac disease? That's a great question, Stu. Um, so just before I get started here, um, any doctor always has to mention something along these lines uh, on a podcast. Um, so uh, basically, this is just for your information only. I'm not practicing medicine here. Um, if you do want to make serious lifestyle changes or you're concerned that you might have heart disease, make sure you consult with your family doctor. The other thing these days, um, you know, healthcare has become quite controversial in certain aspects. And so uh, anything I'm going to say today is really just my own opinion. It doesn't represent anything from uh, 
either any of my colleagues at uh, Kelowna Cardiology Associates, the hospital here, Interior Health, or the university. So just to put that out there, but, uh, you know, uh, most people probably recognize this is just sort of informational. Um, so, yeah, th thanks for the, uh, the great question there, Stu. Uh, I'm really happy to be able to talk about that because, um, you know, the... Uh, you know, possibly differently than some of my colleagues uh, down south, we're uh, drowning in business here. And the more heart disease I can prevent, the better it is for uh, for everyone. Um, so, um, f first of all, I guess um, it's important to put heart disease in context. So, what are we talking about? I think the the most important thing um, is what's called atherosclerotic heart disease. That's the kind of uh, plaques that develop in your uh, coronary arteries and lead to heart attacks. Um, the natural course of that is more heart attacks, something called heart failure, and eventually death, um, which is uh, fairly uh, terrible. And in fact, uh, heart disease is now the second leading cause of death in Canada. Um, it used to be the first, and it's still globally the uh, first leading cause of death. But uh, anyhow, it's, a, it's, uh, it's a, large, a large issue, and so that's the reason that we want to try and prevent that. And the good news is that 90% of the risk for heart disease seems to be somewhat preventable. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, I kind of break it into two categories. The first is stuff you should see your doctor for, and the second is stuff you can kind of do on your own. Uh, so the stuff you can see your doctor for, and I'd encourage everyone who hasn't been for a checkup to, uh, to go see their family doctor, um, because the, uh, you're going to need your, uh, your doctor's help to look after things like your blood pressure, um, your cholesterol levels, and screening you for diabetes. So those are three big things that if they're treated, they can dramatically reduce the risk of having uh, heart attacks down the road. Now, this, the stuff that uh, you can do uh, individually um, and uh, is, is also quite impactful. I'd, I'd say the, the biggest one is smoking. You mentioned that already, but you know, if there's one thing you can do today, um, it's try and stop smoking. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a hard thing for people to do. Most people don't succeed their first time around, but, um, but with repeated efforts, it, usually people are pretty successful. Um, there's a great website called quitnow.ca that I'll put a plug in for. You can take a look at that and, uh, and start off on your journey if you're still smoking. You know, vaping, um, I don't know what, if the evidence is, is there yet, but my suspicion is we're going to find that vaping is not amazing for you either. Uh, maybe a bit better than cigarette smoking, but I don't think it's, uh, it's particularly good. Um, so the, the next thing uh, I would say is exercise. And a lot of this is kind of like, uh, you know, um, motherhood statements. I think we all kind of know that, but it's, it's very important uh, to, to reiterate this stuff that, um, you know, going from sedentary to even like, you know, five, 10 minutes of exercise a day has a huge benefit. Um, the uh, international societies, whether it's the Canadian um, Cardiology Society or the Europeans or the Americans, everyone sort of recommends a minimum of 150 minutes of moderate activity a week. And that, that would be the equivalent of 150 minutes of walking. I, I think that's like kind of the low bar. Like you should really try and, and go, uh, go and get more exercise than that. Like I, I would recommend uh, an hour a day of walking if you can. Like it's good, it's good on all fronts. Uh, it's good for your mental health, uh, especially if you get outside. Um, so, uh, you know, beyond that, uh, maintaining a healthy body weight is important. Um, it's a struggle for many Canadians now. Um, and uh, one way of looking at that is with something called the body mass index or BMI, which you can, you can go online and do a calculator. It's basically your weight divided by your height squared. 
Um, so if your body mass index is above 25, um, you probably could benefit from some weight loss. But uh, particularly, it's the weight uh, around the middle that's problematic. Um, so uh, we, uh, and unfortunately, that tends to affect men more than women. After menopause, women tend to start getting weight around the middle as well. But uh, anyhow, that, that weight uh, seems to be more problematic for reasons you probably don't want to get into. But uh, it, for women, usually you want to see a, a waist circumference. And that, that's not kind of like the belt that goes below the belly. That's kind of right around the middle there. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, uh, less than sort of 80, 88 centimeters in a woman or around 100 centimeters in a man, that's, that's reasonable. Above that, it starts to carry uh, risk of disease. Um, mm. Other things are uh, diet. That, that's quite controversial. Um, as I've talked to you about before, Stu, there's a lot, lot to dig into there. But, uh, you know, most, uh, most doctors would say something like a traditional Mediterranean diet, uh, kind of low on processed foods, um, is, is a healthy diet. Um, people have tried uh, many different types of diets over the years. Uh, and so it, it's, it's uh, you know, if you want to get into that later, we can talk a bit more sure. about it, but, but diet is one. And then um, th the other thing that I think is becoming more appreciable um, are these sort of like social factors and psychological factors. So I, I've kind of lumped them together there, but it might be stuff like getting a good night of sleep. Um, poor sleep is associated with poor health and, and uh, risk for heart attack and dementia and mortality, everything. Um, stress, very difficult to quantify, but it's, it's real. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's even things like your social connectedness. So um, there's uh, people who have studied this and found that uh, people who are lonely are more likely to, uh, to have heart attacks and die. So, um, you know, these are not necessarily easily solvable things, but things to work on um, that, uh, you know, th that, uh, that will reduce your, your chances of heart disease and, and stroke and mortality. And, and actually, most of these things don't um, really apply just to heart disease. If you tune all of these things up, your life is going to be much better as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Um, it's funny with all the things that you suggested and most of them, obviously, within our control as, as humans and individuals, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely horrifying that heart disease is the number two killer. I mean, considering we can control a lot of this, not, not that it's easy. But. No, no, I, I think you're right to, to point that out. Um, and you kind of wonder why. Um, so I think there's been a, a change in what the, um, what the driving causes are. Uh, prior to maybe the 1980s, I'd say things like smoking, um, and uh, potentially cholesterol and uh, poor, poor diet, and there's a lot of trans fats in the food. I think that was the predominant driver, but we've done a good job of treating things like cholesterol with um, statin medications. We're getting better at screening for blood pressure, but what we're fighting against since the 1980s is an epidemic of uh, basically overweight and obesity and diabetes. Um, and, you know, stepping back, I, um, I really think it's, it's very hard in kind of modern Western culture because, I, and I'll, I'll kind of use that uh, as, a, as a broad paintbrush there to, to paint this picture, uh, in that I think this applies to basically all of North America and Europe, um, and it's starting to, uh, to move around the world, which is basically the, the lifestyle that our culture leads, lead, uh, 
puts you on a path towards poor health. Mm -hmm. And so um, we're, I think you really too, you know, although, like I said, 90% of, uh, of heart disease may well be preventable, um, it's an uphill battle because uh, if you just kind of uh, go through life doing what most other people do, um, and, uh, you know, let's, there's also, I think, uh, a lot of um, marketing towards things that are poor uh, lifestyle choices. Um, and if you kind of follow along with that, um, you're, you're kind of going to end up with a lot of these health problems. Mm. And so we don't live in a, in a culture, I'd say, that promotes um, good health. Uh, and uh, we end up trying to pick up the pieces later on in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you're leading to when you talk about these, uh, they're food choices. And mm -hmm. obviously the success of humankind over, over the you know, past several hundred years is we've now access to the excesses, mm -hmm. right? Getting the bad end of the stick of, uh, of all the things that we've been able to to do agriculturally were, you know, I mean, uh, back in the seventies there, the big worry was how are we going to feed this, uh, you know, this, this global population that's moving at a, at a high rate. Obviously there was huge agricultural, um, advances. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we actually in, in, in many parts of the world, we have excess food. Um, and of course we have excess processed food is, is, can you talk about, uh, the sort of process side of things? Because I think that's where the, uh, the obesity, uh, overeating of just lots of bad food. Yeah, that's a, I think you, uh, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, and uh, y we could consider ourselves basically victims of our own success. Better um, words, that's what I was looking to say, yes. Uh, in that uh, I think a lot of this has arisen after the Second World War. So um, during during the war, it's my understanding that a lot of um, technical uh, technological developments took place that allowed food processing, right. and um, you know my grandparents and and uh, parents grew up in rural Alberta and Saskatchewan, respectively. And you know in the winter there, there's pictures of uh, planes having to fly food into the small towns and land on the main street, and you you get the sense that not that long ago it was actually hard to ensure that you had food to eat. Um, whereas now, uh, and, and at that point in time, you know, you needed refrigeration, um, you needed old kind of old world techniques like pickling and various, uh, uh, canning techniques or whatever to, uh, to make sure you had food through the winter. Now, um, you can get, um, I mean, for many of us, you can have anything, anytime you want. Um, and that's, you know, from, from the perspective of our, our ancestors, it's pretty amazing. You know, there's, uh, Famine, I think, now potentially is more of a political and distributional problem than an actual lack of food, as you said. Because right. there's, yeah. there's um, with the Green Revolution that you were referring to earlier, uh, agricultural outputs have, uh, have really soared, I think. Um, and so we solved one problem, which was food availability, at least um, on a quantitative basis. We didn't maybe solve the distributional problem. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, we've uh, created all these processed foods, and I th there's, it's hard to really, um, I don't know that there's one, one evil villain here. I think it's just a uh, kind of a convergence of different factors. So I think there was the technology piece, which was one. Um, I think um, companies are getting good at 
giving people what they want. Um, and that's things that taste good. And they tend to have a mixture of uh, flavoring, uh, carbohydrates, sugar, salt, and, and fat mixed together. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, not to pick on Doritos, but that's sort of a perfect example, right? You can't just eat one, or maybe that's Pringles, but, you know, <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same stuff that basically it's, it's engineered for us uh, to really want to eat a lot of it. Um, and it doesn't have a lot of nutritional value in it. Um, so I think there's that. And then, you know, this, this uh, may be a bit controversial, but um, it, starting in the 70s, uh, and it, a lot of it has to do with uh, the cardiology world, we were really convinced that uh, eliminating saturated fats from the diet um, was going to cure heart disease. And I don't know that that's really worked all that well. And I, I think the cart was put before the horse in that it was sort of a hypothesis, but I don't know that it was proven. Uh, and so there were guidelines that went into place that uh, really promoted the elimination of saturated fats. Um, and, you know, there, there may be a small benefit to doing that in isolation, but the problem is that when you told people to stop eating butter and other places or other foods uh, full of saturated fat, they didn't just start eating broccoli and kale and asparagus. What they started eating was Doritos um, and uh, cheesies. And, uh, and so really uh, our consumption of food that's of a kind of uh, poor nutritional value, I think, mm -hmm. has soared. And I, I think uh, that type of convergence of things is really... Um, uh, really leading to the uh, epidemic of obesity, at least from the nutritional right. side of things. On that uh, saturated, I, I, I remember that being, you know, a, a big thing, Stu, when, when you and I were teenage and, and going forward, and it was the move to margarine. Mm -hmm. Not sure that that, that that was the success. Is that, is that, is that what you're referring to? Um, going from saturated to, to yeah, a Yeah, so that's a good question. That's, you know, that might be an important distinction for um, your listeners. So, um, not to get into the weeds with uh, the chemistry of fats, but uh, a saturated fat uh, generally is is from animals, although not 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 all animal fat is uh, saturated. So interesting fact, I uh, just um, off the top of my head here, like fifty percent of the fat or something along those lines in an, in a cow, for instance, is actually oleic acid, which is the same. Uh, fat that's purported to have the good benefits in olive oil, and that's not saturated. Mm -hmm. um, but generally speaking, uh, saturated fat is from animal sources. Coconut oil is an example of a vegetable saturated fat. Uh, and it just has to do with the chemical structure and the number of double bonds, but we, you, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to have any listeners uh, left if you start going down that road. Next um, podcast. Y yeah, exactly. Uh, you, you know, if, if there's listener demand, you can have me back to talk about uh, fat chemistry. Um, and uh, so unsaturated fat is basically things that you find um, in, uh, in seed oils. These are uh, oils that are made from basically, you know, uh, crushing uh, the seeds of, of grains. Um, and then there's something called polyunsaturated fats, which are um, the so-called so essential, essential fatty acids, omega-3s, omega-6s, um, that come large. I mean, the omega-6s come from a lot of the seed oils. Um, and uh, omega-3s do come a little bit from things like flax. Um, interestingly, they're also present in grass-fed uh, animals. So uh, and if you have grass-fed cattle, they'll actually have some omega-3s in them, but 
the the chief source uh, historically has been seafood. Mm. Um, so uh, w- I, I promise not to take a detour there, but I think I lost track of where we were actually going with that question. Um, I think it was just a good education on 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 fats and and sort of the evolution of oh margarine, of, right, right, and um, <clears throat> but what you guys said earlier, which is you know we're we're sort of the victims of our of our own success. I think from a from a cardiologist standpoint, it must be. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Dan, but it must be incredibly frustrating as a physician to have a disease which is, you know, preventable in large part if if you just do the right things. Because if I think about, you know, other spaces that I've worked in, ophthalmology, you know, if you eat more kale, you're still probably going to get cataracts. And, you know, in, in neurological disease, you you know, you, you can't really change a lot of things to prevent some really horrible diseases. And then if you look in oncology, I'm sure there's a number of things you can do to help reduce your risk. But in, in, in your line of work, it, it sounds like for a lot of folks, if, if they make some really, not suggesting it's easy, but if they make some, you know, really specific behavioral or lifestyle changes, they can ward off heart disease. Yeah, I, I, uh, I guess I try not to let it get me down. Um, I got to loop back just for a second to margarine. Margarine was a bit of a disaster um, because <laughs> it took saturated fats, uh, which were butter, which were thought to be bad, but I'm not certain were all that bad, and replaced it with um, margarine, which is a hydrogenated seed oil and it's actually full of trans fats and so it replaced something that was potentially not all that bad with something that ended up being horrible modern margarine by the way is is not made of trans fats anymore so i'll just to uh, conclude that bit there yeah um but yeah with regards to the um preventability um you know i i i'm I try my best to be uh, sympathetic to uh, to my patients because I just I realize that a lot of these things aren't choices um, that are. Uh, y- I don't think people people are really uh, alert when they start down the road of their sugar and processed food and snack addictions when they're kids. Just like when kids first start smoking, you know, they're not really thinking of the the consequences. So I think these these patterns of behavior get set when people are young, um, and then it takes a tremendous amount of effort to uh, to break them. Uh, and and you know, there's a lot of stuff in modern life. So it's not just those health behaviors, but there's just so many things that make it very hard for people to make changes in their lives. And a lot of it has to do with uh, basically energy and attention. So Mm -hmm. if you want to make any behavioral change in your life, you've got to free up some time and some energy. And so if your life is so busy with your family and work, um, that uh, you get home exhausted at night and don't have anything, any gas left in the tank. It's pretty hard to sit down and, you know, do the homework to read about how you should change your diet or, you know, to find time to exercise. And, and I think uh, that that makes it very hard. And uh, unfortunately, um, it's I think oftentimes people only make those changes um, after they've met me in the hospital and had a heart attack. And it's mm-hmm. that... that uh, you know that that becomes the wake up call where people then have to force uh, force the the space in their life to make those changes. Mm-hmm. But we're doing this podcast today, so this is the information we want to bring bring to the listeners. And uh, these are, you know, this is this is why we're very excited about having uh, having you here today. Is 
um, is exactly what you're explaining. Uh, this will get to people, you know, obviously before they've had a heart attack and they're now trying to mend themselves. I hope so. Yeah. What can you offer us on the genetic side? Stu, you've talked uh, about all these uh, items that we can either behaviorally or, or food intake or what, all these things that are quite measurable and our ability to change uh, our food intake and what we're eating and, and just habits and so forth. What about the genetic side? That's a great question, Des. Um, so uh, there was a time when we thought that genetics was really going to be the answer to this stuff. But um, what, uh, what we found is uh, far more complicated, I would say. Um, so s- the kind of slam dunk paradigm for genetics in medicine is finding a disease that's caused by a single gene mutation. Um, and this is the kind of thing you learn in your biology textbooks in high school and university where, you know, if you have a dominant trait, then there's a, if your uh, father has one copy of that and your mother doesn't, well, you've got a 50% chance of inheriting it. So that, that's the simplest thing. And unfortunately, we just haven't found many of those uh, genetic abnormalities that lead to, to heart disease. Um, what, we, what we say is it's uh, a... a polyfact or multifactorial or polygenomic um, condition in that there's a whole bunch of genes, all of which contribute small amounts, uh, but there aren't too many smoking guns. Um, so um, it, the you know we don't really do a lot of genetic testing. Um, there's the odd time where we will, um, and that would be in someone where there's a history of many, many family members at very young ages, like in the 30s, having heart attacks. Then then we might go fishing a little bit, but usually it's not something where that leads to uh, useful information in terms of treatment. It's more useful information just to uh, inform future generations about the risk they face. Um, so, uh, you know, just uh, like, let's give you an example. There, there may be, there are some conditions that, uh, some gene mutations that lead to uh, elevated cholesterol levels. And so um, we uh, will sometimes test for that. But uh, frankly, the cholesterol level itself tells us there's a problem and we have medications to treat that. And it, the, the treatments aren't that different uh, or don't really differ at all um, whether or not we know what the gene is or not. We just lower the cholesterol. Um, one thing that, that may be uh, um, of use down the road, and again, we may not need to know the gene for it, but there's a, there's a I, I, you know, to turn this into not too complex terminology, it's a t- type of cholesterol particle called a, a lipoprotein, but there's this thing called lipopro- lipoprotein little a, which is going to get a lot of um, airtime, I think, in the near future, but it's uh, probably the, one of the more inheritable um, risk factors for heart disease. Uh, we've known about this for a long time, but uh, it, um, it wasn't easily uh, measurable. And I think right now you still have to pay privately to get this measured. Um, and uh, th- right now there's no treatment for it publicly available, but at some of the larger scientific meetings lately, we've seen that there are various uh, new um, new pharmaceuticals on uh, in the pipeline that, that may address this. So so I, I would say overall, um, the genetics of heart disease have turned out to be a lot more complicated than perhaps we'd, we'd hoped. Um, and uh, all the genes tend to accumulate together, each adding a small amount, mm. but, um, but there's not really a smoking gun, I would right. say. 
<clears throat> Dr. Batten, question for you, mm-hmm. maybe a two-part question for our listeners and even for me. Can you explain the difference um, between an MI and a cardiac arrest? Okay, um, yeah. And then the second question is, you know, we see on TV all the time that, you know, guys like Des and I should carry around baby aspirins in our pocket, you know, in the event of a heart attack. Yeah, great questions, uh, Stu. And I think those are, you know, they're, they're common questions that a lot of people have because uh, oftentimes uh, myocardial infarctions or MIs um, are kind of grouped together with cardiac arrest, but they're slightly different. Um, so um, a cardiac arrest is basically when you essentially drop dead and your heart has stopped. Um, the most common reason for that is an arrhythmia. So uh, basically, you'll have something uh, called a ventricular arrhythmia, where your heart, uh, instead of beating kind of in an organized uh, way, the typical lubbed up, lubbed up, um, it uh, goes into a very haywire erratic pattern. Um, and uh, that's usually so fast and irregular that it doesn't lead to any meaningful pumping of blood. And because of that, um, your uh, all of the organs of the body don't get uh, any blood and thus oxygen. And uh, as soon as your brain is without oxygen, uh, the lights go off. And so um, that's essentially a cardiac arrest. That's where um, the uh, the real advances where we've seen in, in terms of improving survival from that are uh, bystander CPR uh, and uh, AEDs, which are now in casinos and uh, shopping malls and hockey rinks. Uh, just as an aside, the safest place to have a cardiac arrest is actually in a casino um, right now. They're very good. good. Oh, very good to know. Yeah, yeah. they've got their eyes on you. Uh, and they're, they have a, a, a big interest in keeping you alive. Um, <laughs> so uh, so that, that's a cardiac arrest. And, that's, um, uh, and so um, it's different from an MI, which is a, stands for a myocardial infarction or a heart attack. Um, that's basically where there's an interruption of blood flow to part of your heart muscle because of a, a, a blockage in one of your arteries. And that's usually from a blood clot. Um, uh, in m- many circumstances, that doesn't cause a cardiac arrest, but in certain cases, um, a large heart attack can lead to that arrhythmia problem, which causes a, a cardiac arrest. And then linking that up with aspirin. So uh, aspirin uh, is what's called an antiplatelet. Platelets are uh, little bits that float around your blood and help with blood clotting. Um, and aspirin prevents that aspect of blood clotting. So um heart attacks or MIs feature blood clots in your heart arteries and uh, taking aspirin um, tries to break those blood clots up a little bit or prevents them from getting worse. Okay. Yeah. And it works that fast? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's not instantaneously, but it does, it does work reasonably quickly. Okay. Yeah. No, interesting. I've, so, I've, I've always wondered about both those things, the MI versus CA and, um, yeah, you know, frankly, if you're having chest pain that you're worried about and you're taking an aspirin for, before you reach for the uh, aspirin, reach for the telephone and call yourself an ambulance. <laughs> then, then you can take your aspirin. Um, and the same, I mean, just the same process is actually going on with most strokes as well. So, um, you know, if you all of a sudden, uh, just, you know, as a public service announcement, if you all of a sudden, you know, have trouble with your vision or can't speak or swallow or part of your body becomes numb or paralyzed, you pick up the phone and call an ambulance and then take your aspirin. Right, right. No, great. Thank you. 
there's you, you and I have chatted a bit about and maybe it's a you know a natural sort of segue into the next topic Dan which is sort of being a frontline worker during the global pandemic and and you know we'd love to hear from from you um what that was what that was like um and des what i was referring to is you and i talked about myocarditis a fair bit um so we'd love to learn a little bit more about that but but why don't we start with just your experience as a you know on the front lines through this you know uh, unprecedented period yeah that's that's a great question and um you know, I think it's interesting because it, the pandemic has affected many people in different ways. So, um, you know, your your perspective of the pandemic uh, to my perspective of the pandemic to, um, you know, a teacher's perspective to, uh, you know, someone who works at a Starbucks, we're all going to have had different challenges. Um, you know, as a healthcare worker who's been in the hospital, you know, most days uh, since the pandemic started, you know, I, I'd be lying to you if I told, told you it was great. Um, you know, it's uh, it's probably been the the hardest part of, of my career. Uh, and I, I should say too that uh, a lot of uh, other doctors and certainly nurses and people like uh, respiratory uh, therapists have 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 had to do uh, much harder harder things than I have. Um, you know, I think the emergency doctors, the nurses, and um, ICUs and emergencies, um, even the hospitalist doctors who look after the general cardiology ward, they were, or the, sorry, the general hospital ward, they, they probably uh, bore more of a, a brunt uh, from this than I did. Um, so, uh, you know, hats off to them because it's been a, a really uh, tough time. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's been a few phases, I would say, to, to how um, how I felt in the pandemic, and I think many healthcare workers would um, probably have uh, similar thoughts on the matter. So, uh, when we first started to catch wind of this in uh, in February ish of uh, 2020, I think most of us were sort of crossing our fingers uh, that this was going to be isolated to uh, to China, uh, and then uh, we got a bit scared once uh, things started to. Uh, go downhill in Italy. And that I think that's when it really came home. You know, not only did we see a lot of people dying in Italy, but we started to see a lot of doctors dying um, and healthcare workers in general. Um, the same took place in New York. And, you know, one of the telling moments for me, anyhow, was there was the uh, the, the whistleblower doctor in China, uh, a guy that by the name of, I think it was uh, Li Weijiang or Li Weikang. Um, and he was actually silenced by the, the Chinese government, I believe. Um, and he ended up dying of COVID. Uh, he was the first per- person to really speak publicly about it. And so um, I think initially we were all pretty nervous. And, uh, you know, um, <laughs> I actually uh, put together my will for the first time uh, during that phase. And I know a lot of other doctors did because, we, you know, you really didn't know. And what became uh, apparent to us was that we weren't prepared for this either. We we really didn't have the uh, the PPE. We're all familiar with that word now or that acronym. Um, there weren't enough masks. There weren't enough gowns and gloves, um, and uh, and so we were really quite worried then. Uh, so that that I would say was was phase one, um, and I, th- I think that varied for, from uh, person to person. Um, and uh, here in the Okanagan, we were actually spared uh, largely. We didn't have a lot of cases. Um, 
and really in the initial period it was more you know we were worried about it but um but practically speaking it was just more of an inconvenience in that we had to shut down our clinics we didn't know how we were supposed to look after our patients we had to uh figure out how to move our practices to telehealth um you know there were financial issues as well but that, that's another another story there not interesting um and uh and i think we kind of overcame that and we didn't get really hit hard um with covid until delta which is in the late fall and and winter of 2020 21 um and i think that's when uh, you know at a certain point i think we we stopped being scared when you just saw this every day um and i think uh, we probably got inured to it a little bit in that we we uh, you know we were with covid patients all the time uh with masks and gowns and and we sort of seemed to survive doctors weren't getting too sick uh but our patients were very sick and uh i you know i in cardiology we do see the odd patient die but we're we're pretty good at uh at keeping people alive these days and i've just never i've never seen so many people sick or dying in my life before uh as th- during that uh, that delta wave and it was uh it was it was pretty tough uh tough to see um and i think um that in that phase i think i was really impressed with how deep everyone involved was able to to dig and give the the extra effort um and i think everyone gave 110% uh, during that part of the pandemic um working extra and it certainly wasn't easy you know it's the the hospital is a busy place to begin with and uh if every patient room you go into you have to put on a mask and uh and face protector and gown and gloves uh everything was just harder for everyone involved um and uh and it was a real challenge and i and that that's probably when the worst of the covid mortality hit canada um but we learned a lot uh, and do- the icu doctors in particular uh and um the uh, the general doctors on the wards they learned about looking after covid patients and giving steroids and uh and so uh, i think you know the that period although it was horrible was also you know it was inspiring because of what people were able to uh, to, to accomplish and i and i think that was the time when people were still all together you know uh in the same boat uh there wasn't much division in society uh, at that stage um so then there was phase 3 i would say which was the the phase of hope this sounds like some sort of star wars trilogy uh but uh in the phase of hope um that's when you know in almost miraculously but you know by the end of 2020 and into early uh 2021 we started to get vaccinated uh, and i you know it was uh i think outside of the medical field people were pretty excited about vaccines at that point in time but i tell you inside uh we could not wait to get these vaccines like um you know uh, there were colleagues who were literally um crying tears of joy when they got vaccinated because it this had just the threat of getting covid and and ending up like our patients on a ventilator or or dead um just weighed so much on us that uh, we were so happy when these things came out and if you'll recall you know the everyone was clamoring to get vaccines then and it, you know they were threatening to sue the government if they couldn't get their their booster uh within 30 days um and so 
that was probably, you know, after the first vaccine in January of 2021 uh, and getting the booster later, and that's when the rest of the, you know, uh, the uh, elderly and immunocompromised start to get them. Things were looking up then. It was a really uh, good time. Uh, and uh, particularly, I think for most of Canada, certainly in the Okanagan, the, the summer of 2021 was great. Um, it, the rates were kind of low. Um, we'd all, you know, had our boosters and, uh, and things were, were looking good. Um, and then uh, I would say all hell broke loose uh, last November, December when Omicron came on the scene. So this was a new variant from, uh, from I think, from Africa. Um, and although it doesn't seem to uh, be quite as severe in terms of causing people to get sick and require hospitalization and die, it's way more transmissible. Uh, and also um, is able to partially escape some of the immunity you get from vaccination. And I think that really, you know, it it just kind of ruined it for everyone. Um, it, you know, we'd, we'd been riding riding high after getting our boosters and thinking we this this pandemic was kind of behind us. And then all of a sudden, we, we saw the highest rates ever um, of hospitalization and, uh, and COVID last, uh, last December, January. Um, and that's when I think our resilience kind of let up. And um, we've been in a slow decline, unfortunately, I think, since then. So, uh, you know, the, uh, what, what we've sort of forgotten is that there's still a huge burden of this. So that we've got about 7,000 patients at any given time in, in Canada with COVID admitted to hospital. And that's higher than any time during like 2020, 2021. Uh, so our, our hospitalization rates because of Omicron have stayed very high. Um, then healthcare workers started getting sick with COVID. People started calling in sick. Then there was overtime demands because there was no one to do the work. Those people got sick and tired. Um, you know, family doctors shut their offices, emergency departments got closed in, in, uh, in smaller towns, hospitals were full, surgeries were canceled. And then, you know, the sad part, I think, is we lost our cohesion. Um, you know, I couldn't believe it last winter when there were people protesting the hospital, preventing me from getting into work. And I, I, I was thinking, what, what, on, what in God's name are you protesting? Uh, you know, we're, we're keeping people alive. Uh, and um, and people are protesting the hospital, um, so that that's I would call that the phase of frustration, um, and and that continues kind of inexorably. Um, although I, I think we we haven't we haven't seen the huge spike in COVID cases that we saw last uh, Christmas, but it's just kind of this slow grumbling thing that's wearing us down. <clears throat> So yeah. that, that, there's a long answer to uh, to your question. Well, look, that was that was great and super thoughtful. I mean, you, you you were on the front lines, and I think the way you you explained it makes makes perfect sense. I mean, w we are in an interesting time in that, you know, that <clears throat> I was watching uh, MSNBC the other day, and their one of their medical advisors, correspondents, Dr. Ben Gupta, was saying. They're talking about this this sort of trilogy right now, RSV and flu mm. and 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 COVID. And in the U.S., I think they added you know the common cold or something as a as a fourth pillar. Uh, and he was saying, well, it, it's no surprise at all. I mean, given the fact that people were masked and in lockdown for two years, they have a natural weakened immune system, 
And when you put everybody back out in the, you know, general public or population, you're going to get a lot of very sick people very quickly all at once. Does that make sense? Yeah, somewhat. Um, so, uh, Basically, we're we're seeing, uh, particularly in the pediatric population right now, um, huge rates of all sorts of respiratory illnesses, um, and uh, it it's uh, as you said likely a, a consequence uh, or I, potentially I, maybe you'd say an un- unintended side effect of uh, of uh, a lot of the COVID related um, policies such as masking and um, uh, and uh, lockdowns and um, social distancing. I don't think it truly represents a weakening of the immune system. I know that's being floated around there. So I, I don't think anyone's immune system was was weakened by that. I think it's just lack of exposure. Um, and the uh, uh, at least it's, I'm not as up to date on this because it's not right now. It's not affecting my patients as much, but it's certainly a big issue for for pediatric uh, populations. But um, basically it seems like each individual person getting RSV or influenza or whichever uh, respiratory virus it is probably isn't getting any sicker than he or she would have previously. It's just um, normally uh, kids get these things every year. Um, It's sort of a rite of passage. You, you know, when you're, you go to school or uh, kindergarten, you're exposed to other children, you get sick. And so uh, my understanding is that uh, there was just a whole bunch of bottled up uh, um, susceptibility or children who who hadn't been exposed to these, and they're all getting it all at once. Uh, so I, I so I think I, I think the uh, you know I, I agree with that. Like it's a sort of a, a side effect or unintended consequence of of what's been going on. Uh, but I don't know that it's truly a weakened immune system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it isn't uh, isn't what you just described a uh, lack of exposure? Isn't I mean. I'm, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a medical guy, but I'm, I'm assuming, uh, and maybe wrongly, that uh, you know our our immune system needs to exercise itself. Yeah, that's that's a good question. So, um, I don't think you necessarily need to uh, be exposed to diseases to have a healthy immune system. Um, there's some. Uh, you know, there's, there have been some suggestions that living in too sterile of an environment could result in allergies, but it, uh, it shouldn't reduce your capacity to fight further, further viruses uh, down the road. Um, so it's just a matter of um, when, you know, when you get sick. So if you get mm-hmm. sick um, or, you know, if, you, if you're exposed to something um, and you develop uh, antibodies to it, uh, then you may have some immunity going forward. Um, and if you haven't been exposed to that, um, you know, you, you've just deferred that until later. Mm. So I, I don't think that, you know, it's not, it's not the same as someone who's immunocompromised where, the, you know, their white blood cell counts are lower, you know, because they've got some sort of, some sort of genetic condition or they're on medications that suppress it. So it's not as though people have all become immunocompromised. It's just they haven't had let's say, the opportunity to meet with some of these common pathogens that, mm-hmm. uh, that float around. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's not, I don't, I don't think it's a, it's a weakening of the immune system per se. So m- my illustration of uh, our immune si- system needs a, to be exercised, that, that's not, that's no, not I d- how No, I don't works. think there's any need to exercise your immune system. Right. Um, y- you know, I, I think uh, the fewer colds and viral illnesses we have, the better. 
Um, I don't think I, I'm not aware of anything that suggests that uh, they do us any good. You know, if there were, I don't think there'll ever be a cure for the common cold. Um, probably for reasons for similar reasons to why it's so hard to to vaccinate against COVID. Um, but uh, you know, if we never had to have a cold again, I don't think we'd be any worse for wear. Right. Yeah. Hey, qu- question for you, Doctor Dan, on you know the vaccines where we are in, in your mind in, in our ability to combat COVID going forward. Um, I'll quote again from uh, Bloomberg, I believe I was uh, was stating that, you know, in the U.S. they had ordered 70 million doses of the booster, uh, and to date they've only um, administered 7 million. Mm-hmm. So there is a tremendous reluctance, at least in the U.S., for uh, individuals to get the booster because they just don't believe it's effective. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a that's a a good point that you make. Um, I you know I'd have I don't know that I've ever seen sort of survey data on on what's behind the so called vaccine hesitancy. Now, part of me wonders if people are just kind of tired of it. Um, and uh, certainly, I think with what's happening with Omicron in that people who have been vaccinated and have been boosted are still getting Omicron. I think that's uh, that may be uh, leading to uh, certain skepticism. Um, and actually, because I knew you were going to ask about this stuff, I, I did a little digging just for my own benefit. And, you know, being boosted myself uh, and just having had COVID last <laughs> week, uh, you know, the, you it does make you, you, you question this stuff. Um, and so uh, I... Th- um, what's the best way of putting this? I, I guess I completely understand um, why people may be hesitant. A, the people are worn out, and B, they're getting Omicron despite uh, vaccination. So uh, certainly that that can lead to a certain skepticism. Um, and you know, again, not to get too technical, but there's different parts of the immune system, and it seems as though um, the antibody part of the immune system um, doesn't produce great antibodies against Omicron. Also, those antibodies tend to wear off after about six months, so the levels the levels drop. Um, and that's probably why, uh, despite all of the vaccination, people are still getting Omicron. The reassuring thing is that there's another part of the immune system called the cellular immune system. It's sort of like, you know, if you're thinking about this as a uh, uh, as a forest fire, I guess, like the antibodies are kind of like the bombers or the helicopter dropping fire retardant wherever they see the, the flames. Um, the, uh, the cellular part of the immune system is, is basically the bulldozers that are trying to make a fire break. So they're, they actually go and destroy any of your infected cells. And they seem to work very well still. There still, still seems to be quite an effective uh, response there. So um so although people can still get infected, it seems that the severity infection in people who are vaccinated is, uh, is much lower. Um, and uh, if you look at South African data, I think it was, um, there's still 70% effectiveness um, against Omicron from, from the vaccine. So although you still might get infected, it seems as though on average the sickness or we're less likely to be sick and less likely to end up in hospital. So, um, you know, having, I had to admit, like once I got COVID myself, I was a little skeptical, (laughs) but reading through the data, it sort of reassured me uh, that there really is benefit to this stuff. Um, 
And, uh, you know, particularly in older folks or people who have immune compromise or uh, other health problems, I think it's, a, I, th I think the boosters are still uh, better than nothing, even if they don't 100% uh, prevent Omicron. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, what we don't know, though, is how you would have responded to COVID in March of 2020 versus, you know, November of 2022. Yeah, we just don't know. No, it's it's really these are they're very difficult questions, and this is uh, you know this is one of those things with uh, w with uh, anyone who's thinking about vaccination. You you don't know if you didn't if you, if you haven't gotten sick, you don't really know if that's because you got vaccinated or because you know maybe you were going to be immune anyhow. Um, and if you did get sick, you don't know. Maybe it would have been worse. Um, so it's very hard, and that's. That's why you really have to look at, at the uh, larger data um, of you know, big populations. And, it, and um, you know, it's, it's uh, I, I mean, this is another to topic all, uh, entirely, but I think the pandemic has really exposed how difficult it is to communicate scientific information. Um, and uh, there's just such, been such a, a proliferation of, uh, of science, pseudoscience and you know downright misinformation um it's very difficult i think for even for myself with some training in this uh to to really make sense of it and i think it's very hard for the average person with uh less scientific training or mm -hmm. appreciation of statistics to make sense of it mm -hmm. um so anyhow bot bottom line is i i feel somewhat reassured in in vaccination now um that i i think it really is uh helping prevent people from getting really sick, mm -hmm. um, even if, and, and the other thing I should say is that um, the, I think it might be a Israeli data, or it might have been UK data among healthcare workers, but it does, vaccination does seem to reduce transmission as well. Uh, so you might not, uh, even if you get sick yourself, your viral load may not, not be high, as high as, as it would have been otherwise, and you may prevent those around you from getting sick. So mm -hmm. there is some benefit there. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think, you know, I, I, I want to touch on, you know, the hesit hesitancy thing, because mm -hmm. <clears throat> certainly um, one thing we haven't talked about yet is uh, these vaccines, mm -hmm. these COVID vaccines, right, which have no no long-term testing. Right. Okay. So when we talk about, you know, and, and there, there, there's lots to unpack there and we're, we're not going to make a half an hour out of this, but the fact is, is that there are people that are on one side or the other. And they've been, in my opinion, not helped by the medical community. They haven't been helped by the media. They haven't been helped by uh, the, the p political class either. So we've got a situation where there are valid concerns about these vaccines. You're talking about the mRNA vaccines, I presume. That's, yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and of course, the efficacy is, is it's a real question. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking in the very early days where they were talking about uh, not being able to, to catch the disease or, or, or contract the disease. Mm -hmm. That went out the window very quickly. And it was all about the dumbing down of this, the severity of, of, of the disease. And is there data that shows that? I mean, you, you talked a little bit about some UK and, and South African data, but is, is that still out there? Because, I mean, is this a, real, a vaccine if, we, if all it's doing is dumbing down the severity? 
once it's contra- contracted. To, to me, that's not a vaccine. That's that's Tylenol for COVID. Yeah, that, I mean, uh, I I think you raise uh, valid concerns there, and certainly, um, you, you it probably won't surprise you that that's the first time that that's not the first time I've heard something like that. Um, so yeah, and I think this this touches on um, the communication of uh, of basically risk and also uh, scientific information. Um, and also people's expectations. So, um, you know, it's so complex that I can't really pinpoint and say, like, uh, uh, these people at this time said this was going to be 100% cure. Um, In the medical world, at least personally, I never expected 100% cure or something that would prevent all cases. Um, We know from the influenza vaccine, which has actually been probably less successful, at least uh, historically, than the the COVID vaccine, that you you can never prevent all cases. Um, And it just depends on what you're fighting against. So um, viruses that tend not to mutate um, and uh, and are, you know, easy to identify, they, they tend to be uh, fairly easy to vaccinate against, like something like polio. It's the same polio all the time. Uh, your body, uh, if it has a long incubation period, your body has time to fight it off. Unfortunately, uh, and, and again, I should say that I'm not a virologist and COVID right. is not yeah. my specialty. So um, I, I haven't taken the hugest interest in it, aside from the fact that it sort of thrust itself uh, into my my professional way. Um but COVID's in some ways the worst possible actor for trying to deal with. So it's uh, it's got a short incubation period. So your body doesn't have a lot of time to defend itself before it becomes fully active. Um, unlike some other things, you can spread it before you've got symptoms. Um, and so people are out, and then not everyone gets symptoms. So it's it's a very tricky virus to to pinpoint, and then it mutates quite quickly. And so this is, you know, I, th- I think it's a very difficult foe uh, to fight against. And so, um, you know, I don't, th- I, I think lo- people hoped that we might nail this with the vaccine, but I think knowing from the influenza vaccine history that y- we may not nail this thing. And right. so it may have been, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure someone can do their PhD thesis on communication of this information. Um, but I think there was an impression, and I, I did in my uh, kind of historical rundown of my experience with COVID, mentioned that there really was this period of hope, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I think we we all hoped that this was it, that the vaccines would work. And the you know from the from the initial clinical trials, um, in terms of preventing sort of symptomatic infections, which was what their endpoint was, the. Uh, they were like 94, 95% effective. Uh, that was the Pfizer and the Moderna. I don't remember which was which, but anyhow, they were highly effective in that regard. Um, and uh, and so I, I think that that's quite successful. I think if it hadn't been for mutation and all these extra variants, which no, no one would have really predicted, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, I think virologists probably knew that possibility was there, but I, it, it's very hard to know what happens right. when you start vaccinating people. Uh, we we were all Im- immune, I think, and and quite well protected from the original uh, Wuhan variant. But 
then other variants came and it, it you may you could argue and i i'm sure people know more about this than i do that it may have been just the the global variation in vaccination that there were huge areas of the world that didn't get vaccinated um and that allowed more variants to crop up so you know i i it, from my perspective the fact that within um kind of uh less than a year we developed these vaccines rolled them out and also tested them pretty uh, you know like there's no long-term data don't get me wrong um although it's it's developing now but they, they've undergone more rigorous uh testing than something like the polio vaccine mm. or other vaccines in history different era yeah different era right yeah but you know you you mentioned that and and right now um a t uh, testing for myocarditis has been initiated. Mm -hmm. uh, that's now. Yeah. Right. So I, I, again, back to the hesitancy thing. Um, you know, the you know, there's people pointing their finger. Hey, you're, you're anti-vax. You know, yeah. I I don't know, and there there probably are anti-vax people out there. Mm -hmm. But I communicate with a lot of people who are anti these vaxes, not polio and measles and what have you. They're because of the valid reasons about about long term mRNA, mrna is a new technology mm -hmm. and when you look at the certainly the the uh, the the 19 to 69 year old cohort, cohort yeah. which is the working that's our economy yeah when you shut down an economy that age group of 19 to 69 got sent home Mm -hmm. In its entirety, pretty much all over the world, mm -hmm. um, and we're you know let, let's don't get into you know what what that's done to the to the society, um, but that they had a survival rate of ninety nine point seven better percent. Yeah, no, you're you're right. So uh, I think um, there well there's yeah there's a lot as you mentioned there's a lot to unpack with these things mm -hmm. and um, I th I think there's What's the best way to look at it? So there's science and there's public policy. Uh, and I think reviewing the, the, the data, if it's well done, um, it can, you know, through scientific process and statistics, we can get closer and closer to knowing the truth. And, it, you know, it's like uh, Plato's world of forms. Like we never really know the absolute truth, but we, we try with better and better methodology, hopefully Certainly. honestly done and transparently presented to, to get there. But it, it doesn't tell us what to do with that information. And so I think that's where uh, these, these issues come up. So um, certainly uh, y y the bulk of uh, death and disease happened in, in the elderly. So um, you know, 60% of deaths were, were in people in their 80s. Correct. Um, and they're probably, they derived the greatest benefit from vaccination in terms of a mortality standpoint. Uh, I'll just put, put in a little thing here, um, in that I still think that there is benefit, um, to like the, the risk of complications on average is like, point zero zero one percent like a serious complication from the covid vaccine it, um, and the risk of death in the young group is quite low it, it, around the 50s it goes to about four percent around uh you know in the like 19 20 year olds it's it's probably uh like point zero zero one or something like that it's a very low rate so um 
So there's there's still prevention of death, but it's tiny uh, at low low uh, at lower ages. The one thing that hasn't factored into this that I think is relative relevant is that about a third of people who get COVID have some sort of long symptoms, um, and that can last for months. And I I think that's a bit underappreciated. And if you can prevent that from happening with vaccination, there's not great data on this because it's very difficult to define a case of long COVID and then study it. So I think we'll, we'll know, um, later on, like maybe after a couple years of this, exactly how effective the vaccines were for preventing that, but it seems like they do work. So, uh, so anyhow, I, I agree with your analysis that it was predominantly the elderly and the sick who who benefited from the public response. Um, but then that that becomes, I think, not an issue so much of science, but an issue of of public policy and just deciding what our values are. and mm-hmm. uh, and and I think, that's a super tough question. I, I don't yeah. have the answer to. And it's that. obviously it's outside of your your purview, professional purview, but that that's more of a question for uh, you know Hinch the pragmatists or or or, or, the pra- or or the Bonnie Henrys or the Teresa Tams or of the world where you know the their purview is is the society's health mm-hmm. and and many folks have uh, have thought that all they did was you know look through a COVID tube ra- rather than the the scope of uh, health in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Okay, because when we we locked down, we did a bunch of things. They spent no consideration on on alcoholism, uh, mental health, suicide, all these other things that fall in the pr- purview of health mm-hmm. uh, by looking at only COVID. Yeah, no, I, I think and that's a... We're suffering the, the and we will for probably as long as your eyes, eyes can see. Well, the, and, yeah. and your point, Des, and I, I totally agree. They, you know, if they did think about those things that you just mentioned, we certainly didn't hear about it. And despite the fact that there were from various corners of the, the world folks looking for that information as it relates to suicide rates, et cetera, it, it, it really never came to light, you know. Dr. Patton, you talked about social connectedness and the importance of of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know a lot, as as I'm sure all three of us do, a lot of seniors that, you know, that was a super difficult time. You know, and you know their depression uh, was exacerbated. Um, you know, I, I would say their decline in some cases was accelerated. Um, like th- there was a trade off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, um, and uh, I guess. Uh, just to play devil's advocate here to for the in the spirit of uh, of having a, a vigorous debate about this um you know i i think it's worthwhile realizing that all these decisions were made in the fog of war and i think analyzing it in hindsight we recognize the the other costs the unintended costs and i certainly there were lots of economic costs and you know the as you mentioned if you're a uh, you know, my wife is a university uh, instructor, and her students, or, or my friends uh, who are high school student or high school teachers, like their students really suffered. Like there's there's a huge gap in learning um, that uh, I think took place during COVID. Um, the people who you know didn't proceed with their career paths. Mm-hmm. There's just so many things, and like you mentioned, mental health. Um, there's the uh, opioid crisis. There's a lot of other things going on. Yeah. Um, but the, the one thing I would say is that um, I, I think 
in the fog of war, what we saw was all of, you know, if you go back to my initial phase there, where we saw our colleagues um, dying in the hospitals and this 8% mortality rate, and we didn't know what the hell was coming. Um, it, you're as a, you know, if you put yourself in the position of someone like Bonnie Henry, you know, you can't win because if you over, uh, overdo it. True, um, true. And, you know, that's, that's for sure. Um, having said that, and I will grant you the, the very early stages, we didn't know a lot about yeah. this, this disease. And I, I will grant you that. But by the time it was July and August of 20, um, we started to see some data. Mm-hmm. And, and who, who, was, who was dying? And of course, this is where it gets political. What information was, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, some, how do you communicate a lot of these things? Well, what I think people were identifying is a, 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 a dishonesty by omission. And, and, and that, that has become something that our media has been actually very good at here lately. But specific to the pandemic, you know, you said uh, done in the fog of war. I, I'm, I'm going to put a voice out there for the people who said this is the wrong path, these lockdowns. They were saying it early. There are, you know, like anything, everybody's got an opinion about mm. something, and then a lot of it was political. But uh, you look at somebody like uh, Jason Kenney, you know, he, he's he's not uh, the premier of Alberta anymore because of how he handled the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There is a, a, a thought by many that things were handled a certain way and in, in a hard line without looking at data that was available yeah i mean i'm I'm not i really haven't been involved in any policy making at a larger level so no no one ever came to me to ask me about the lockdowns but never uh, came to the pragmatics either (laughs) no i mean we weren't in existence yet or they would have done yeah so i expect and next time you'll be getting a a call quite quickly (laughs) but you know i again i i i uh i don't um i don't envy the people who had to make these decisions Mm. because it's very difficult to predict what the consequences would be. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's f- uh, I, I maybe not f- completely clear, but I, I, I think if you look at, you know, it's not something, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to even uh, pursue this too far because I don't know the data very well, but somewhere like Sweden, I believe, had a fairly liberal attitude and didn't have a lot of lockdowns. Um, and they had a very high mortality rate among their elderly. Uh, and so uh, it's, uh, I don't know what their rates of long haul COVID or anything are. So, uh, you know, I think, it, I think these trade-offs were there and whether we made the right choices, I, mm. I, I don't honestly know. But I, I think at the, at the, um, at the outset, uh, people were very, um, very worried about the, the virus itself. And, and I think that it was felt probably reasonably that the best way to look after everyone was to just deal with the pandemic and get beyond it. I think what we didn't anticipate was that despite our best efforts, this was just going to be such a tough adversary and that we weren't going to necessarily win an outright victory. So Mm -hmm. despite Mm -hmm. lockdowns, uh, despite social distancing, despite masking, uh, despite vaccination, we still have the Omicron variant. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's why people are frustrated, but I don't blame 
any of the people involved because I think most people acted in good faith um, even though there's a lot of disagreement and I know people felt silenced and not heard um, I, I think we I think it was a largely reasonable response in a difficult time and it's you know it's just very hard to beat a virus like this yeah well one thing that we can probably say at this point is that uh, society has learned a lesson here because there is already out the studies out there about what these lockdowns have done mm-hmm. and I don't think uh, I won't give everybody credit uh, <laughs> but I think uh, some of the data that uh, John Hopkins did a study and and some others have, are, are really quantifying what these lockdowns have done you know before the the pandemic uh, you know Federal government of Canada had a, you know, four hundred and sixty, four hundred and eighty billion dollar uh, debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, Post pandemic, one point three trillion. I mean, we have thirty eight million people here. We're not a very big country. A hundred billion is too much. We're now one point three trillion in debt, and interest rates are going higher. Inflation's higher. All these kinds of things, uh, and now it's not it. You know, it's 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 raining on both sides of the mm-hmm. soccer field. It, it the globe is is finding all that, but much of the globe has got uh, has instituted policies that has that have put us in this place. Yeah, I you know I, I think it's all, all those points are are uh, well taken, and uh, you know I, on the other hand, I, I there just to look at the other side of that coin. We're still spending, so each person in hospital with COVID right now, um, it costs about 25 grand. Um, if you get admitted to the ICU, the average cost of that is probably between 60 and 100 grand. Um, we're uh, uh, total, total visit or yeah, not by total, day? Total yeah, visit. Yeah, yeah, total yeah. visit. Yeah. And then, um, you know, the, I, I, this is translated into billions of dollars a year. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then there's the, um, you know, the, all the surgeries and stuff that have been canceled, we're probably 500,000 OR cases short. I mean, I'm looking just at the healthcare bit here. Um, obviously, the, the broader economy and all the other uh, knock-on effects are, are, are bad. So th- there's just, I don't know that it's, it's just, uh, it's just a real mess. Um, and whether there's an easy, I, I, I think th- what I've tried to resist the whole time is blaming Policymakers for something that's the that's caused by the virus, um, and I, I think the virus uh, is apolitical and it doesn't really care what you think. Uh, it's just mutating and trying to infect you mm-hmm. and spread onto the next person. And um, and uh, you know, there's we just have to make these trade offs. And and but you're right. I think there there were unanticipated a lot of unanticipated consequences and. I think the biggest variable that we didn't count on was how long this was going to take. You know, I remember, I'm sure you guys totally thought that w- when we locked down, it was like, all right, lockdown, cool. Well, you know, we'll watch Netflix. And then two weeks later, you're like, hey, this is still going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it's lasting years. Uh, no no one thought of that, I don't but, think. But data on on these these types of uh, uh, viruses, pathogens, what have you, um, in, in pandemic situations... There's like a two to three year window historically. That's I I read that 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 is the data. So yeah, uh, I mean to say, you know, it would it was going to fizzle itself out or find its way to uh, not being a pandemic by, you know, the end of 2020. I think would have been there's data to say it's different. 
Well, you know, it depends what you're, again, you don't, you don't know what you're facing until you basically almost got it in the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's, uh, I think we always have to acknowledge that. So for instance, you look at something like SARS-1 or MERS, um, both of those had the potential to be much worse. um, But through containment measures, we were able to uh, avoid a pandemic. Um, And so I think people were looking at initially towards that type of model. Similar viruses, um, both coronaviruses, but able to contain them very quickly with little collateral damage. And so I think the hope initially was that it would be like that. Yeah. Uh, and this this virus just happened to have evolved a little bit differently. And um, But, you know, going back to something like the Spanish flu pandemic, uh, to- totally different boat. Uh, and, the, you know... Um, I can't remember, like 50 million people died. Um, but then again, uh, you know, and, and thinking about the Spanish flu pandemic really highlights how remarkable uh, our current era is in terms of figuring stuff out. So the Spanish flu pandemic, 1919, after the First World War, it they didn't figure out that it was caused by a virus until like 1930. Um, so we didn't even know what a virus was back then. People were looking for various bacteria that caused it. It just so it just had to, they they had to let it rip and off the radar. Yeah. yeah. Um, now you know within months we had this thing sequenced. We knew the genetics. We knew how it spread. Um, we worked on vaccines. We figured out the PPE situation. Um, we made monoclonal antibodies. The British did a study that found that dexamethasone reduced severe. Like it's it's a it's a scientific triumph. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know whether uh, you know whether the public policy could have been better. Uh, I, I don't know, but I, I just think that uh, we we may not give people enough credit, given how difficult this was. Because I think people really thought, with the same measures we took for MERS or or SARS one, we'd be able to shut it down and we'd be back up and running in a yeah. you know a few weeks. Yeah, that's a different podcast. That is. <laughs> Yeah, for another day. But, you know, your your point is, and you said it a number of times, and I think it's an important concept. You know, it, it was all about trade-offs. And, you know, the, the, the fact that a lot of these decisions, like you said, were made without all the information in front of you because it was unfolding as we, as we all survived it. Well, okay, we didn't all survive it, but you know what I mean? At least yeah. the three of us. <laughs> we're still good. <laughs> um, thinking, yeah. But I think one thing is probably for sure, had... Had we done nothing, mm-hmm. and the mortality rate was one two percent in the early days, I don't know what it is now. I haven't looked recently. Yeah, but. so it's 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 probably around point one percent or uh, what is it one percent of oh sorry it's one percent case fatality rate overall for all comers. Um, it's about ten percent in the elderly. Um, initially, it was around eight percent, and that might be because it was mainly elderly who were getting sick and dying. Um, so yeah, it's like about 0.1% of Canadians as a whole have died from it, 40, 47,000 or something like that. Right, right. Um, so it's, uh, y- you know, it's not quite Spanish flu pandemic, but, uh, it's certainly bad. Uh, no, but, but yeah. to the whole conversation that yeah. we had, it, you know, would it have been Spanish flu like numbers had the vaccines, MRNA vectors, whatever, not, you know, not been available to us, right? That, that. Had we just let this, as you said, let her let her run or let her yeah, rip, yeah, 
like it, it, I think we would all agree it would have been and the only analogy would would be Sweden. It would have I been a hundred. Although million. in Sweden they 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 have the vaccines, mm-hmm. but to not shut down your economy, n- nothing. They had no mandates, and except you, for travel, right? Nobody was going in and out of Sweden. Correct. Yeah. No, nope, that's correct. It became a pandemic uh, worldwide. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So the this, the set of conditions that, that that Sweden put into play for their citizens, certainly prior to, to, to vaccines, and you can look at their data. Uh, their data isn't isn't outrageous in in any in any uh, any metric. And from a vaccination standpoint, I haven't looked. When I suppose I can go on the Johns Hopkins website and find yeah, out what but, it is in Sweden. Yeah. yeah, I think it. I don't think they're. I think they're probably middle of the road. Like yeah. average European, you know, probably 80, 80 plus percent is my guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the conversation ultimately is is going to be one, and you know, Doctor, you and I have talked about it. You know, there's there's a libertarian. You could have taken a very libertarian view. Yeah. Or you could have taken a utilitarian view, and 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 the greater good is more important. And I think that's ultimately what the majority of the globe chose, which was the utilitarian type view: get vaccinated, protect your neighbor, protect the elderly, protect the, you know, those at higher risk. Um, I think ulti- ultimately, for me at least, that that will be the conversation and debate, you know, years from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I I think that really is what it comes down to. So one, you know, one. One model, and I again, I, I'm not sure what the best option would be. Would just be to say, hey, the, all the high risk people who are likely to die from this, well, you guys lock yourselves up. That's what the I rest thought. of us are going to carry on, um, and you know that may not that might result in a similar uh, overall mortality rate to um, what we had with large scale lockdowns. Um, is that? just and ethical i don't know um in hindsight maybe that was better i don't know that we knew what would happen up front but you wonder if the public health response now knowing what we know would have been that that if you are high risk comorbidities whatever it is or you're 65 and older guess what get to the island mm-hmm. if if the public response next time will be more like that. Yeah. Well, that's why I said, you know, if, if, if anything, we've learned something here. We're, we're actually quite valuable because we're talking about it right now. How would we? What entire lockdowns look like, both medically, uh, mentally, and economically? We know what, it, we, we know what they look like. Mm-hmm. We're starting to digest uh, and quantify that data, and they're coming out in studies. As I said, John Hopkins uh, University has, has got one out, and, and it's... It, you know, it, it, lessons learned. Well, there's no shortage of data available. What what they do with it, Certainly and how they yeah. disseminate it, will be, you know, will be will be a podcast for another day. Yeah. Um, great conversation. I, I want to take it back to cardiology just for one sec, mm-hmm. if if that's okay, doctor. Sure. Because yeah. um, when you were going through the sort of ninety percent preventable and talking about risk factors and stuff, um, you didn't talk about one that I think I'm going to ask on behalf of Des. You didn't really talk about drinking. Yeah. So. That's a good question. Um, what was that all about? <laughs> I'm asking for a friend. Yeah, it's it's not uh, so. Alcohol consumption um, is not typically thought of as a risk factor for heart disease. Uh, and Whew. hold on, uh, but but it does seem to be that, that uh, excess alcohol con- consumption is is linked to uh, increased health problems. Uh, and so, you know, what we basically recommend. Uh, to the public is um, for men. Uh, Don't say five. 
No, 14 is sort of the, the in a week. Oh. <laughs> it's like 14 a day sounds yeah, reasonable. You know, no more than three in one day. On average, less than two a day. That's sort of the safe drinking guidelines for uh, for a man. Although they may, there is talk of uh, sort of tightening that up a little bit. Well, well I, I saw recently in the, I think it was this spring that uh, was it Health Canada. Somebody came out with new guidance saying any drinking of any kind is unhealthy. Yeah, that probably is the direction we're moving towards. Unfortunately. Ah. And, uh, you know, there used to be this idea that red wine was good for the heart, but uh, unfortunately, I think that's been dispelled. Um, so oh, Say it ain't so. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Good uh, for the soul. That's right. Makes it good for the heart. <laughs> Not a medical professional, but... I, I'm still sticking with the safe drinking guidelines of, like uh, of 14. 14 a week. but uh, Or less than. Oh, sorry. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, you, you're, you may well be better off the less alcohol you drink, although... Um, you know the uh, the part of me that likes to drink wine says that it uh, it it's often uh, a lubricant for for good uh, conversation and uh, and it often is something you do with p- other people and so uh, you know it keeps you from getting lonely. There you go. Uh, if it offsets the impact of not being socially connected or being lonely, then it's has some value. Back to trade off. I'll take all this under advisement. I like this. Yeah. 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 So, so there you go. Uh, it can. There are other. There are some rarer heart problems that can can result from uh, from alcohol. So it's it's highly, uh, or it's it's involved in something called atrial fibrillation, which a lot of people are hearing about now that a- Apple watches can detect it. It's mm-hmm. a heart rhythm mm-hmm. problem that's quite common. So alcohol does contribute to that as well. Right on. Well, thanks. This is where you uh, you bring in your sponsor <laughs> sponsor vineyard for the well, week. We actually, yeah, we, we actually do have a sponsored vineyard for the week. What? Um, but we all we always tell people to drink responsibly. Here's the bottle. Don't drink it. <laughs> <laughs> the best place for this is in your cellar. <laughs> well, we'll just say just just only have fourteen of these a week. Yeah, exactly. Seems reasonable. <laughs> it's actually generous. Well, that was great. Um, Des, any other questions for no, Dr. I, Patton? I, I think uh, a few of the items that we, we wanted to touch on, we did. Uh, I mean, uh, to be honest with you, we, we, could, we could go another hour for sure. Dr. Patton, you've, you've been uh, terrific at, at uh, educating us on, on all, these, uh, all these items we've talked about. Uh, obviously, you know, we're at the age where, you know, we got... <laughs> <laughs> the prime specimens yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> well, except for the superior athletics and genetics, but other than that. But we are at that point where we're yeah. actually, you know, starting to carve out some some behaviors and intakes that you know need to be moderated and what have you. And and uh, it's it's been a it's been a terrific interview for sure. Yeah, I, I think we got to have Doctor Patton back and, and talk a little bit more. With I mean, to your point, Des, there's there's areas we touched on and there's a whole bunch we didn't get to. So yeah, yeah. yeah Did you come lot. on again? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Only if we don't talk about COVID anymore. Well, I think we've we've <laughs> we've, uh, we've set that one uh, up and and set it down. Uh, I, you, you gave uh, a terrific insight onto uh, you know what it was like in the front line, and and I know we we wanted you to uh, to talk about that. We're not in that world. Not everybody is in that world, and I can only imagine uh, in in those uh, early and mid phases what that was like and uh, it was it was good you touched on that and gave us an illustration of what your life was like on the front line yeah it was awesome that was a good trip down memory lane (laughs) thanks doc yeah no problem thanks for having me on it was great uh, great to be here awesome thank you dr patton 
awesome having uh, Dr. Dan Patton on Des. Uh, I think super healthy conversation. I know we we went a little bit over time, but um, I think it was worth it. Oh yeah, no, there's there's no doubt uh, we we've we've made this last about a about an hour and a half to to this point. But uh, I enjoyed the conversation. Uh, he answered a lot of questions that we had on some some interesting and some difficult questions and yep. or some yep. some subject matter. Um, but I, I really enjoyed this. I'm, I'm really looking forward to having them back again and, and talking about some, some other items that, uh, that are also equally important. Yeah, no. And, and Dan, uh, has a lot of really good, uh, ideas and I guess opinions as it relates to the healthcare system in general. And, and you and I have talked about it and, and we want to continue to talk about it because it's a, it's a healthcare system kind of under siege. So, yeah. Um, and we didn't cover a lot of ground there, but uh, maybe that's uh, the basis of uh, bringing him back uh, in the in the near future. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, he agreed to come back, so um, very good. Yeah, we'll look forward to it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I see that we've uh, like we do every episode. We've got uh, a feature of a nice, uh, a nice bottle of, and this is an Okanagan wine. This yeah, man. Yeah, we're, we're we're back to the Okanagan after our uh, our uh, short trip to California. Right, mm-hmm. so we're gonna uh, we're gonna taste a uh, a, a Viognier twenty twenty one Viognier. So this is our first white wine, Des. Yeah, I guess it um, is. Yeah, from uh, the Laughing Stock Vineyard, which is uh, in Naramata. Uh Wonderful place. Uh, I certainly recommend a visit. Uh, Laughing Stock was founded, uh, geez, almost twenty years ago by uh, by a couple uh, David and Cynthia Aaron's. Couple of comedians. Yeah, yeah, a couple of comedians. Comedians or Canadians? Comedians. It's laughing stock. Oh yeah, yeah, laughing stock. Well, it's a funny story. I you must heard... have run ahead on you there, didn't yeah, I? You did. You did. I'm, I must be uh, getting late. Um, I encourage our listeners to go online, have a look at their website. You'll get the laughing stock piece because uh, Dave was an ex uh, an ex capital markets guy, a little bit like you. So um, uh, they named it, a, a, you know, sort of a little play on the stock market. You with know what? Stock. I I do know this winery. I do know the story. Yeah, and I know you yeah. picked this wine for today's uh, episode, but uh, I I do I do know this uh, story a little bit. Yeah, yeah, great, great, uh, great little spot. Uh, very unpretentious, uh, lovely place to go have uh, a tasting. But um, why don't you have a little sip of the Viognier and uh, well, tell th- us what you think? Yeah, thanks for pouring this. Let's let's give this a a pull. Well, that was that's delightful, and you know. Um, What's starting to be a, uh, from the little bit I know about uh, Vognier, is um, it's quite often used in blends and not often found, you know, historically as as 100% Vognier. But here in the Okanagan, I've now tasted over the last, uh, you know, couple, three years, many wineries that are doing 100% Vognier. And, and this is this is very good, very good. I, I like it a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly um, gaining favor. This is a, del- a delicious, uh, delicious version. Delicious. Delicious. <laughs> delicious. Um, anyway, Des, a great conversation well, today. It was yeah. awesome having, uh, again, thanks to to Dr. Dan Patton for, for joining us. And um, I guess until we until we meet again, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about next time. Yeah, we we did want to touch on a few things here today that uh, you know just uh, uh, time doesn't permit. We want to keep these to a reasonable uh, time. 
this is the longest one we've had, and uh, rightfully so. It was great subject matter, um, and uh, as you said, we'll, we'll bring Dr. Dan Patton back on uh, again. Uh, but like we usually like to do, we like to close off with a with a tune that meant something to us in our, in our childhood. And I know um, you know we've been you know bantering these things back and forth, and and. Uh, uh, I threw this one out to you. You 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 came back and said, "Hey, that's that that's a classic." Yeah, man. I think that this this is a great tune for for a lot of reasons. And um, tell me tell me a reason. Oh Come on, God. man. Um, well, I like the name of the the band, <laughs> Climax Blues Band. Yeah, band. exactly. The Climax um, Blues Band. But I, but I will say this. I mean, for years, I, I always thought this was Little River Band. So I, I got I got this tune mixed up with. You know some LRB stuff. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. No, and I can I, I see where you're coming from there. But um, you know, real melodic, great, great, great har- harmonies. But you know, when I look at this tune that will will let you uh, take the the podcast out, listeners, and 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 so forth. You know, this came out when we were like mid teens. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, girls were were a, a, you know they were a thing in our life and what have you. And this song, uh, not only is is uh, you know, got got lots of uh, great melodies yeah. that with you know with the, the the nice tricks in it and what have you. But you know, it's about a about a young guy who's just doing his thing, growing his hair long, and he meets a, a evidently a, a girl of tremendous energy. He gets completely uh, he likes this girl a lot, and it's a great little story. She smiles at him and makes him feel great. Well, she turns his life around, man. Absolutely. She makes she makes him a better man. Exactly. A, a little bit like our ladies. Exactly. Um, you know what? It it does draw a little bit of a parallel. A, and, a little bit. Yeah. And hitting uh, the so, town. Exactly. Hitting the town, growing my hair. All right, man. Let's hear it. All righty. Thanks, and we'll talk again soon on episode five. five. Ciao, bye. I hadn't a care Fooling around Hitting the town Growing my hair You came along And stole my heart When you entered my life Ooh, babe You got what it takes So I made you my wife Since then I never looked back Almost like living a dream And ooh.